Paul's letter to the Corinthians, beginning at chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. 
Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. A very happy Easter to you. Let's pray to the risen Lord. Lord, thank you that you are alive from the dead. Please help us this morning to understand a bit more about it. For your name's sake. Amen. I have two requests as I begin. The first is that you will have 1 Corinthians 15 open in front of you. It's always very good to check out the preacher for his heresies. 1 Corinthians 15 is page 1155. My second request is for your prayers as I face the sternest test of any preacher to have large numbers of families sitting in front of me. Now, if you were last night, how many people actually were last night at the Messiah? Vast numbers of you. Thank you very much. You will have been exhilarated. You will have been lifted up to the skies by that marvelous presentation of the Messiah last night. But this morning, a gray morning, it would be very easy to feel that Easter, with its message of joy and hope, is really rather misplaced this year. The economy worldwide is in free fall. Incomes are slashed. Homes are repossessed. Credit is impossible to get. Thousands in the developing world face starvation. Crime is escalating everywhere. Large numbers of children go hungry to school without breakfast. And the moral bankruptcy of our land is horrific. We are taking drugs and booze to cover the emptiness within us, and counseling has become a growth industry. So what ground is there for hope? Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French existentialist, who was passionately atheistical, changed his tune at the end of his life. Not everybody knows this, but uh, he did. And six weeks before his death, he said this, despair returns to tempt me. The world seems ugly, bad, without hope. That's the cry of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. I know I shall die in hope. Ah, But hope needs a foundation. It does indeed. I do not know whether Sartre ever found that foundation. 
But that foundation is the empty grave and the living presence of Jesus Christ. As far as I can see, there is no lasting, solid ground for hope to be found anywhere else. It was the first Chancellor of Germany, Adenauer, who said, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, I see no hope for humanity. Well, of course, he was not the first to draw that conclusion. In uh, page 1155, uh, you will see that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 stares steadily into the face of black despair if Christ did not rise from the dead. Nobody could accuse him of wishful thinking. Look at verse 14. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then the gospel is useless. Literally, it's empty. There's nothing in it. Secondly, your faith is empty. Same word he uses. He picks it up in verse 17. Your faith is futile. Third thing, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, the witness of the first Christians is a pack of lies, as verse 15 puts it. We're found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that he raised up Christ and he didn't raise him up if the dead are not raised. A fourth thing is, you can have no assurance of sins forgiven. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Because as Andrew was stressing on Good Friday, Good Friday was the end of the race, but the medal ceremony was Easter Day. And if there is no medal ceremony, who's to know whether the race has been finished or not? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, how can we know if that cry it is finished. There's a cry of despair or cry of assurance. There's a fifth consequence Paul draws here, very ruthlessly in verse 18, that the dead have perished comprehensively. Game, set, and match for anyone who has died. And the sixth thing is that believers, lots of you here are believers, then says verse 19, you are pitiful and deluded. Those are the consequences if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Enormous issues hang on the resurrection. If it is true, of course, it alters everything. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we can be certain that God exists. If Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know that there is a life after death. If Jesus was raised from the dead, we can have confidence that he is the way to God, and he is the truth of God, and he is the very life of God. No other religious leader rose from the tomb. And if he did rise, we can be confident that there is a future for humankind. He is the first installment of that better world that we all want but seem unable to produce. And fifthly, if it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, that puts a new light, does it not, on the pain and suffering and disaster that we see all around us. It's not meaningless. It's not the bitter end. 
the resurrection suggests that this life is the training school for eternity. So you see, a lot depends on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only sure hope in a world that is falling apart. Can we believe it? We cannot afford to shrug our shoulders and be agnostic about it. The stakes are too high. Can we believe it? Listen to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us new life into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter was there that day, skulking on the edge of the crowd as Jesus died. Or listen to Paul here in verse um, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's the first fruit. He's the first installment of others who are going to follow. Or listen to Sir Edward Clarke, a high court judge of former years. As a lawyer, he said, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of Easter Day. <clears throat> the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. And our reading in 1 Corinthians this Easter morning gives that evidence. It was written in 53 AD, and that's why I think Andrew has called it first report. It is the oldest report in the New Testament, written just 20 years after the resurrection, that we have. Notice first two things about this passage this very early passage, just two little aperitifs. One, notice the man who wrote this, Saul of Tarsus. He was the most determined enemy of Christianity that you could find in a long day's walk. He was the man whose massive intellect led him to <coughs> dismiss the Christian claim as a monstrous heresy and whose zeal led him to hound Christians to death, not only in Jerusalem, but in cities like Damascus, two or three hundred miles away. And then the risen Jesus met with him on that Damascus road. And the greatest enemy of Christianity became its most powerful and passionate apostle. That's one little thing to notice as we start to look at the evidence. The other thing is this. It's the age of the tradition that Paul is quoting. He's not telling the Corinthians something they didn't know. He's reminding them of something he did proclaim to them. And he uses two words with a very long history. It doesn't come out so well in English, but it does in Greek and the Hebrew that lies behind it. I received, I passed on. Those are the words that are used in both those ancient languages to indicate authorized tradition. I receive this as authorized tradition and I pass it on as such to you. So do you see what that means? He's telling us that the resurrection stories were authorized tradition before Paul was converted. And that could not have been later than 35 AD. Just 
two, three, four years, depending on when you date the resurrection, after that resurrection. That's the most close to the event evidence you get for almost anything in the ancient world. The resurrection stories are authorized tradition before Paul ever came to hear of it. You can't beat that for reliability. And you will notice the two big names at the head of that tradition are here in 1 Corinthians 15. One is Kephas, which is the Aramaic for Peter, and the other is James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church. Those are the guarantors of this earliest tradition that Paul quotes from here. But Paul, we say, however ancient the tradition, the fact remains that dead men do not come back. Well, convinced you that this man did. Ah, says Paul, do you want to know? Okay, I will give you five reasons. One, the tomb was empty. Verse 4, Christ died, he was buried, he was raised the third day. Now, he doesn't specifically say that the tomb was empty, nor did he need to, because any Jew would know that if people claimed Jesus was raised on the third day after his death, the tomb must be empty. Jews knew nothing of this sort of spiritual, non-physical resurrection beloved by liberal theologians. They used to argue as to whether when you were raised in the last day, you still had the wart on the end of your nose that you had when you were alive. That's how physical their understanding of resurrection was. He was buried, dead and gone. He was raised to new life on the third day, as just a few Old Testament scriptures had hinted. The tomb was empty. Secondly, Paul would tell us, the law, indeed, he does tell us, the Lord appeared. Look at verse 5. He appeared to Kephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of them still alive. Go and ask them if you don't believe it. Then he appeared to James, who was his unbelieving brother in the days of his flesh, but is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. Then to all the apostles, last of all, he appeared to me. Those appearances lasted 40 days, <coughs> and then they ceased. They had proved their point. Jesus is alive. The tomb was empty. The Lord appeared. The third bit of evidence he gives us is the church was born. Verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Ha, huh, says Paul, I know the church was born on Easter Day. I persecuted it. I ought to know. The birth of this body that now spreads over a third of the world can be traced back precisely to the resurrection. Had Jesus not risen, his followers would have scattered hopelessly to their homes 
after his crucifixion, they'd have shrugged their shoulders as the first century is scattered with stories like this. They shrug their shoulders and say, uh-uh, one more failed Messiah. Instead, they formed, they grew, they were fearless, they were always preaching like you find them on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up and we are all witnesses. The fourth bit of evidence he gives us was that lives were transformed. Let your eyes run over this list in four, five, six, seven, as I speak. James was transformed from a skeptic. We're told in the days of Jesus' life, his brothers did not believe in him. He was transformed from a skeptic to the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter was transformed from a disappointed bird-brained braggart to a man of rock. Paul was transformed from persecutor to apostle. The twelve were transformed from a bunch of wimps to evangelists. The five hundred were transformed from a rabble to a church. None of this could have happened without the resurrection. But praise God, it's been happening ever since. He's in the transformation business. And the fifth thing that he stresses is something that probably we feel more than any of the others. Personal experience. Look at it in verse 8. Last of all, he appeared also to me. Every Christian can say this in a sense. Every Christian can echo Paul's experience. Of course, we haven't seen him as Paul did, but we are in regular touch with him. We see him with the eyes of trust and faith. We experience his encouragement, his guidance, and his power. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ rests on very solid ground. Hope needs a foundation, bemoaned Jean-Paul Sartre. It has a foundation. But people today remain disinterested. Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, so did Elvis. Did Jesus rise from the dead? So what, they say, so what? They're not interested in that. They're interested in three very different questions, if they're interested at all. One is, is there really a God behind this world? Second is, is there really life after death? The third is, what religion are we to follow when a Sikh now heads up songs of praise? What religion among all the options that are available for us today? Little do they realize that the resurrection gives a clear answer to all those three deep fundamental questions. First, the resurrection shows that God exists. Constantly, it doesn't say in the New Testament Jesus rose. It says that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the complete refutation of the new atheism that is well settled in Oxford. Nobody could, could be able and nobody ever has been able to rubbish the evidence for the resurrection. It is conclusive 
evidence to us that God is real, that God is the sovereign source of this world, and that God has revealed himself and vindicated himself in Jesus Christ. It answers the question of God more powerfully than any other evidence. Are you with me? One or two glazed eyes? Not many? Are you with me? Okay, here's the second thing. The resurrection shows that there is life after death. Everybody wonders about it. When they stand at the open grave of a loved one and soil is thrown on the coffin, am I ever going to see them again? Or people speculate on whether there's life after death when there's been some near-death experience and people seem to come back from having been temporarily dead. But the only way to be sure if there's life after death is if somebody died well and truly and three days later came back into this world to demonstrate the fact that there is life after death. Somebody has done that. And our confidence in life after death is not based, as Bertrand Russell once said, on the belief that fairy tales are pleasant. It is based fairly and squarely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul puts it here in verse 20, the risen Jesus is the first fruits of the main crop. Where the first fruits has risen, the rest of the crop is going to rise. Where he is, there the believer will be one day. And the final question, not only is there a God, not only is there life after death, but is Jesus really the way amongst all these alternative ways that the modern scene is promoting, ways supposedly to God? Yes, the resurrection shows that Jesus really is the way and the truth and the life. Other faiths have many excellent points in them. But you will never find one whose author rose from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, that settles the question. He is the way to God. In that case, the apparent exclusiveness of Christianity makes sense. It's not that Christians are narrow-minded or uncharitable about other faiths. But with their eyes on the risen Jesus, they see that God confronts us with shattering directness. He offers us all the power of the resurrection, but he demands of us total allegiance. Yes, the resurrection answers decisively three of the greatest questions people ever ask. Does God exist? Is there life after death? Which religion? And that is why the greatest of all Christian feasts is Easter. Alleluia! Christ is risen! He is risen indeed! I wish you a truly blessed Easter.